Um, uh, Reagan, Reagan referenced the fact that um, for uh, we have a, a Bible study, a life group going on here now as well, and, and we had a, a new level of conversation this year than we've ever had about college ministry here at South Spring. Um, and really, I was always, uh, honestly, probably the main anchor when it came to uh, college ministry here. When people would say, um, hey, we need, we need to have some college ministry here, or I would like to be involved directly in a college ministry, I would say, we, we do that through partnerships. We're just too far away from the colleges. We're just too far away from where the college students are. Um, they have to drive past 96 Baptist churches in order to get here. And so, um, and, and so we, and that's just Baptist churches. People would say, I want to be involved in a church that's a college ministry focused church. And I would say, listen, Grace, um, led by Danny Loveholtz, man, he's a, he's a great godly man. That's a great church. They're right across the street from UT Tyler. Maybe you need to go join that church to, to get invested and get involved in that. And sitting on my porch with John Sturrock, uh, uh, I guess a few months ago, and I threw out that again, and John said, in, in basically to paraphrase him, uh, you know, with all due respect, you're wrong. And, uh, and then showed me how I was wrong. And, and in fact, by the time he was done, I realized I was wrong. And, and the attitude on that, the truth is, we have students who drive past our church going to college, and, and going that direction is actually super common. And, and on top of that, part of what initiated the conversation is we had so many of our graduating seniors last year weren't leaving Tyler. Um, they were staying here, and that had happened the year before to a certain degree too, but then we had so many doing that this year that you could build a college ministry just starting with those students. Um, and so realizing we need, to, we need to step up our game a little bit, and that's what we're in the process of doing. And one of the first steps of that is this uh, Bible study, life group meeting that's on Tuesday evenings, um, that's open to any college student. Um, and, and I'm sure they will always take uh, more leadership and stuff. If you're someone who says that's a, that's a passion and a heart of mine, getting involved with the BSM, um, getting involved with whatever, like these are with the ministry here. Or if you think that, man, there's another thing we could be doing, could we be doing this or doing that? And um, we'd love to hear those ideas and really take those and, and run with them. So um, if you know of a college student or if you are a college student and you're not directly involved in a, in a Bible study, or even if you are and you just want another one, um, the one that we have going on on Tuesday nights is excellent. There also are opportunities to look up the BSMs online and get those details and get that information as well and get involved. It's really important. College is a time where, where students... Um, and many of you remember that if you were into college, where people, people then take paths, they take forks and roads that lead them in one direction or another for sometimes decades of their lives, sometimes disastrous, um, and sometimes that's where they really focus in and gain their emphasis, the, where they're going to focus in on ministry for the rest of their lives. So we don't want to miss that, staying connected there. All right, so um, uh, proud to be a part of that very much so. We're, we are in First Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read, you're not surprised to find out that application is a big part of 1 Peter. In fact, um, we've spent the first few chap, first chapter and a half or so, and we're not done yet with that, with the Apostle Peter continuing to, to lay out this gospel before us. Um, for those who are believers, to remind us of what the gospel is and, and to remind us what it is that's been done for us, what has changed about our identity for those who might be hearing this letter who are not a follower of Jesus Christ, to go, this is, this is what the gospel is. You need to hear this and understand this is what you are accepting or rejecting, is this gospel. Um, and then what's going to happen is Peter is then going to say, with this change in identity is going to come certain responsibilities. And we're starting to make that transition over the next week or two, those, those transitions as well. 
So what is, uh, as we come, we'll start reading in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as we look at this, we recognize this teaching. So that those who disobey are destined to stumble. And in fact, they, they face the shame of stumbling. They face the shame of a fall rather than the honor of obedience. Rather than the honor that comes through standing through obedience. So let's talk for a minute about shame. Um, uh, shame is, a, is a something that is talked about a lot in the therapeutic world, sometimes very foolishly and sometimes well, as with most things in the therapeutic world. Um, but understanding the idea of the shame and honor culture. The, the, the shame and honor culture, it was, it was going on, it's, it's a failure, so shame, to define it, is a failure at the identity level. Is that when you fail, it speaks to your identity. And we have a hard time with that here. We struggle with that, and maybe rightfully so. We're not a shame and honor culture. We might use a little more of it, but, but we're not a shame and honor culture. So we're actually very careful to communicate this differently. <coughs> we tell people, and we will say to them, understand, it's, it's not that you're a failure, it's that you failed. And so we'll communicate that clearly, right? In fact, one of, our, one of our favorites with this is the idea of disappointment, which is one of the ones I like to set people free of when they're like, no, no, y- yes, I'm disappointed by you. That doesn't mean you are a disappointment. And I, I like to set people free of that and tell you, yes, you are. You're a disappointment, and so am I. All of us, we're all disappointments. Get used to it. But to, that, and that's why we disappoint each other so much. But, but we do this, in this in, because we're not an honor-shame culture. We're very careful to not make it identity thing, right? I'm not saying you're stupid. I'm saying what you did was stupid, Right? We use that type of language very carefully in our culture, which is the exact opposite of an honor-shame culture. They will clearly delineate, no, no, it's you. It's, it's not that you failed, it's that you're a failure. That's the problem here. What needs to change is not just your behavior, but your identity. You, you are a failure, and you need to change that. You need to, to step out of that. The Jewish culture is still there, some degree still is. Um, if you fail to care for your family, you are a failure, it isn't just that you failed. You're a failure. Your identity is off. There's something there, and you should experience shame in the honor-shame culture. And we see Peter going through this when he references, listen, the shame becomes, you, you bear the shame of falling. It's not just that you tripped and fell. It's that you chose to disobey God himself to deny his identity, and then you fall. Well, I mean, that's kind of on you is the picture here, versus if you obey, there's an honor that comes with it. So I'll try this again. This wasn't a huge hit in the first service, but there was a, um, apparently there's another honor-shame culture that many of you may be aware of. Um, it's a culture called Burke. Any of you familiar with Burke? 
So Burke is apparently this Viking culture that fights, that goes up against dragons all the time. Y'all familiar with this? They live on islands and they speak with a Scottish accent. Yes, it's, I've always thought that's weird. They're Vikings, but they speak with a Scottish accent. Okay, let me, let me show you. So let me, I'll just give you a picture, an example. We get, we get in a movie about them, this documentary about the Burke people um, that talks about this picture, and they're an honor-shame culture, and you can spot it because here's how they do this. So the, the mentor is speaking to the boy. If you, ever, if you ever want to get out there and fight dragons, you need to stop all this. And the boy says, you, you just pointed to all of me. And by the way, the mentor's response is, exactly, yes, that's it, you nailed it, exactly, all of, the, all of you, that's what needs to change. This is a shame-based culture. His dad does it later in the movie. They're both very funny scenes, except... As a therapist, you're like, wow, he's going to need some counseling. But the, the going, so the dad says, this is serious, son. No more of this. And he says, you just, you just gestured to all of me. Yes, exactly. That's the problem, all of you. That's the, this is an honor-shame culture. The problem here is you. Fundamentally, you mean I'm behaving badly? No, no. I mean there's something broken in you. You're a failure, and that needs to change. That's the honor-shame culture we're dealing with. It's similar to the concept that came up um, before Plato and Aristotle, um, a, a philosopher named Heraclitus around 500 BC, who began to teach this idea that character is destiny. In other words, it isn't three, three weird witch goddess type of things who are sewing together your fate. It's your character that determines your fate. And there's some truth in that. Well, it's not a total truth. It's not the whole truth. But there is some truth in that, that, that we need to make these decisions based on this but understand, if we get them out of order, if we reverse them, if we say, oh, I need to behave this way in order to avoid the shame, we'll never get it. But if we're able to say, no, no, because of the change in my identity, now I can behave differently, it would be such a shame if I didn't. Having been set free of the responsibility to stumble, I don't have to stumble. It would be like if, if, you, if you made this proposal to your company, we're going to use this thing, we're going to use this item, and then it totally failed. <coughs> or even if you said, I'm going to reject this cornerstone. Listen, as an, architecture, an architect, we're going to reject this cornerstone. We're not going to use this one. We're going to use a different one I'm going to come up with. And you show up at the work site, and the boss picked the one that you said we're not going to use and didn't even tell you. He just put it in place. Yeah, you're so wrong, they didn't even need to tell you about how wrong you were, and they put it in place. That's the idea being presented in this passage. I'm not telling us that we need to live in that shame. Exactly the opposite. What I'm saying is because of the work that Jesus Christ has done, we are not responsible to live in that shame anymore because our identity is exactly what He has changed. Not because of our merits, not because we've earned it, but they disobey and they stumble. They're defined by their disobedience, and they stumble, and especially in the Jewish culture, you know how they break their mother's hearts, right? That's how you know someone has, is covered in shame, is they've broken their mother's hearts. I've often commented, um, as we teach through Ephesians, when I get to teach through Ephesians, I think there's two beautiful phrases in Ephesians that really get the gospel, and I'm going to add a third one. The first one we find, they're, they're, the first one is the but God statement. In Ephesians 1 and 2, we're building up this picture of kind of a sense of hopelessness. Um, that, that who we are, who we are, is, is we are dead wrong. 
But on top of that, we are dead, wrong, and rebellious somehow at the same time. That's the picture. We are rebels against God, and we are dead, and we are hopeless, and we are helpless. That's the picture presented in the beginning of Ephesians. And then you get to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, and you get that incredible, those incredible two words, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Often we'll reference, this is what makes people uh, uh, messianic characters. This year in, in womenary, some of you know what that is, a, a theology training course for women. You can look it up, womenary.com. And I'm teaching a class on, on Judges and Ruth. And one of my favorite things to teach in Ruth is the middle, is the end of chapter 1 when you're going, what, this is to help us understand what a messianic figure is. It is the person you go, ah, but as bad as things look, as awful as they look, oh, the, the only reason you're, you're hopeless is because you've forgotten about, in this case, Boaz. Here in Ephesians 2, yes, hopeless, helpless, ah, see, but God. Don't forget about God. And then in Ephesians 2.13, as he builds this, as Paul builds this picture <coughs> of a gospel for the Jewish people, from the Jewish people that God chose them to present this blessing, he then says, and, but, but unfortunately those who are not part of that original blessing are outside of that. And then in Ephesians 2.13, before we get too hopeless, um, the Apostle Paul then says, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, but God, and but now, and now we have the trifecta, the, the, um, the hat trick here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you. Here we get the identity statement, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And, and now that I've got these three, the but God, but now, and but you, uh, I just now have to think of a name to call that. I can't, you know, the Roman road works so well, and every name that I try to put with that just seems bad. So I'm still working on it. Um, it isn't exactly the, the Romans. Some of y'all got that, and some of you didn't. Some of you will later. Um, afterwards, people came up after the last service like, I, I got it later. So here, look at the, um, when we look at these five vices, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander that started this chapter, we see how divisive each of these are, how these are together, divisive, the division in the community, that this identity, you are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But imagine if in that nation is malice, is envy, Imagine what happens, and you've seen it in relationships. Some of you have seen it in marriages. What happens when hypocrisy and, and envy and malice and, and those types of things begin to come out in those relationships? Um, deceit, slander. Those are divisive. Those are divisions within the community. And it begins to divide up the very identity of who we are if we're not careful. This is who we are. We are His. I individually, but together, unified, we are this. We are His. For the personal application, I want to reverse these two verses, though, because I think they make more sense to us in the West a little bit if we start with this phrase. Verse 10, once 
you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, uh, I think it was Charles Finney who was famous for saying, it's easy to get people saved. It's difficult to get people lost. And, and it's, it's one of those wild concepts that when you consider the gospel is not hard to accept if you know you're desperate. If you're really, really super hungry, if you've been starving for three or four days, no one has to convince you to eat food. No one has to convince you this is something that you want. And in that same concept for us to recognize, this is, this is part of the difficulty here, is for people to accept, no, no, I, I was not a people. I was an orphan. I was lost. Not only that, I had not received mercy. There was nothing between me and the wrath of God for my sin. There was nothing protecting me. They, they don't make sunscreen at that SPF level. That when God, when His wrath rolls out on sin, I don't want to be there when it hits. And yet there's nothing, that, would, that was us. We were in a condition of being totally open, unprotected, and hopeless against His wrath. We were children of wrath. And that that's what was, that was the, the natural, and by the way, we don't, we don't like that, do we? Because one, we don't like the whole shame thing. He shouldn't punish me for my sin. I mean, I'm just like, you know, I'm just, I'm just failing. I'm not a failure. No, no, when it comes to this, you're not just a failure, you're a rebel. You're an enemy. That's who we are naturally as an enemy of God. We, we serve a God, it's us. And somehow that God has to be taken off of that throne for someone else. I'll get more to that. I'll get to more of that in a second. But that's where we are. Once we were not a people. How important is this? Lance, um, years ago when Lance, was, uh, Lance Sturrock was a missionary in the Philippines, um, his, one of his focus groups, here's, here's what he told me, that when they were IMB um, International Mission Board uh, with the Baptist missionaries, they were working with the Wadai Wadai people. Um, and the word Wadai means zero, nothing. Um, the name they were given was because of, of their la- total lack of value in the culture and in the community. Um, Lance said, literally, that's the word you answer when someone asks, do you have any of something and you don't? Do you have any, do you have any more donuts? Wadai. Do you have any money to loan me? Wadai. No, nothing. I have nothing. That's these people. Um, he said it's partially because they live on the eastern seaboard facing the Pacific Ocean and receive typhoons every year. It causes a lot of erosion and it impoverishes them. As the gospel was unfolded and these people began to realize that though they were cursed by men, they were chosen by God. You can imagine how powerful the gospel worked within their culture. Their downcast lifestyle were lifted and as a people, they were set free. This section... This section that, that, that Peter is writing here, though he's using it on the Jewish language, is for those Gentile believers. You are not a people. You are not God's people. You are not anyone's people. We were outside of that. Um, it seems that God had chosen, so we know that God had chosen a man, a man named Abraham. And he had declared a covenant with Abraham to make Abraham's descendants his special people. He would have a special relationship status with Abraham and his descendants. It seems like as we try to piece the pieces together, as we understand it, that God, like we looked and we talked in Daniel about the princes of Persia or the princes of Greece, these supernatural beings, we think, that God had placed certain spiritual beings as divine counsel in charge of shepherding the peoples and nations of the world. 
They represent those nations, and someday they will face judgment as representatives of those nations, I think. Maybe even regions and cities. In relationship to God, these pagan who were worshiping these other beings or idols and nothings were like orphans. The Gentile pagans were like orphans. They had not been welcomed into the house of God. They were the unchosen, not a people, the nothings. Now, Peter says, they've been adopted. They've been chosen. This, this next section is a description of the church. This chapter is, this section is going to be a description of what the church is, the Gentile church, the Jewish church, what it has become and what it is. This is something I want to make sure that you hear. The gospel in so many ways, fundamentally what the gospel is, it's like the king of endless wealth, the king of limitless significance, the king of infinite love is standing outside of an orphanage and yelling, come on out, come on out, I've, I've, I've already purchased you, I've already made room for you, I have plenty of space for you, I have chosen you, I have everything that you need. I have everything you will ever need. I have joys and pleasures forevermore. I bring the true gift of freedom. That's the gospel, is that there's a king out there calling us out of a grave. Come on out. I have life for you. Is that something that we're willing to respond to? One, do we recognize that that's it? And then how does it make any sense that if we're those type of orphans, former orphans that have now been claimed, chosen for his possession by the king, not just any old family, by the king, and he says, come on out, are we then letting the others know about this great gospel? Are we letting other people know? I think this is one of the real problems that we're facing today in the church, is that we've lost this. We have lost the ambition or the sense of urgency and letting people know that there is someone adopting everyone. That there is someone who's out there and he's got everything we've ever wanted and everything we've ever dreamed of and he's just saying, listen, I'm here, come on out. And it's like we get out and we get to go into our little room and we just stay in there and we don't feel like there's any sense that we need to let other, the others know about this. Where did we get there? Ask yourself, when was the last time you even invited someone to church where they would hear the gospel? Much less, when was the last time you invited someone directly into the gospel? That you told them the gospel? That you told them the good news? How can that be? How can it be that if we really believe this is what the gospel is, that we would want to hoard that? Or hold on to that? That we wouldn't reach out? I've said plenty of times, I do believe the church is like a holy huddle. Where we come together and we, and we get the game plan but the huddle isn't the whole message. After the huddle, you then go back to the game. We may be a holy huddle, but we're, we're not a country club. This isn't a place where you just join and then you get to hang out and get the privileges. There's not a limited membership here. We want everyone to join. We want to get the word out to everyone. And I think we've lost that for some reason. And that's, that has got to change. This is a good time to make this change here at the end, as Lord willing, we're wrapping up a, a pandemic around the whole world. It seems like now would be a good time to reach out to people and say, hey, you looking for family? Hey, you looking for friends? Hey, you looking for a community? Man, have I got a place. 
You feeling lonely and isolated? You're facing your mortality right there face-to-face, nose-to-nose for the first time maybe in your life? Man, have I got a gospel for you. You need to hear this. And that's the message. This is what Peter's saying. Listen, you, were, you hadn't received mercy. You weren't even a people. Verse 9, I'm going backwards. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I was encouraged for all of us in this church when I read the King James Version. Um, have you ever read, anybody reads the King James Version, which goes like this, but ye are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. See, I knew, I knew it applied to us. I knew it did, right here to South Spring. So this is a, we're a kingdom of priests. We carry around the holy of holies. This may not mean much to you if you've been raised in the Baptist church, but if you were raised in the Catholic church, the idea of being a priest, that sounds strange. No, no, you're saying I, I am a priest, you are a priest. I'm saying all the believers are priests. This was part of what led to the schism between the Protestant Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church at the time in the medieval era was this teaching that so often in the Holy Roman Church at that time what was being taught, and sometimes still what was being taught is, no, no, I'll hold your hand, I'm a priest, I'll hold your hand and I'll hold God's hand, and that'll be kind of like you touching God. I'll be the intercessor. I'll be the intermediary between you and God. Only only I can do really holy things. You have to do level two holy things. Only I can do level one holy things. And and Luther and so many others recognize that is not biblical. This passage makes it very clear. This passage is not just for the people who go through seminary or just for the people chosen or just for the people whatever. What this is, is it is just for the people chosen. Chosen by God, meaning all all of his followers. We are all priests. We are those intercessors. Are we doing that? Are we serving as the intercessor between God and the lost world? Are we representing Him? That would be the proper role of a priest in this situation. A kingdom of priests. So this this analogy that Peter's been using in this of us as as living stones to build a spiritual house, we talked about how, how essentially he's talking about us building the temple, the temple being us. Made a big deal about that last week. And a place where the spiritual and the material meet. A place to draw the human towards the divine. Sometimes the divine towards the human. That's what a temple is. Here's what a temple isn't. A temple isn't an idol. You don't worship a temple. That's just silliness. I think sometimes when people use that terminology, sometimes especially in the exercise world, when they talk about our body being a temple, what they mean is, so worship the temple. Temples aren't for temples. Temples don't exist to be worshipped. That's not what it's about. Being a temple is very special. What makes you special is the God that is within you, not that you're a temple. And so this is the picture that that we want to wrap our brains around. The temple is about the God, not about the temple. Is that our lives? Are our lives about the God who dwells in us, who abides with us? Or is our life more about the temple than it is about the God at all? I think that's a worthwhile uh, critique from the Apostle Peter here, is that we're trying to learn to live this out and to do that. What are, so we have a job to do. As a temple, we have a job to do. Our call, to go back to that, that passage, is to, quote, declare the excellencies of God who called us from darkness and into marvelous light. 
So before I get too far into the application, the behavioral application, don't let's don't and and, and by the way, most of the rest of First Peter, there's now going to be a transition in First Peter. First Peter so far is this is what God has done for you. This is what God offers you. Look at this. This is shocking. There's really no way to put it for me to put it in language that would be shocking enough. Seeing the response, like we saw in the, in the video from the Chosen of, of the Apostle Peter, realizing this moment and his response was to fall on his knees and be speechless. Peter, speechless? Until he then says, depart from me? I mean, is that our, is that any, in any way do we have any of those? I don't know that we get that. I don't know that we can get that. But that's the picture is that there's, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. That we would write that blank check in the moment of our conversion. You just tell me what to change, and I'll start being changed by you. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for that. That's what the temple is about. But don't get, in, don't get out of line. So, so I, the, the, I was raised, and I think unintentionally, but I was raised with a gospel that was very behavioral uh, modification-oriented. And you go back and look, and that's how I read the Bible. I read the Bible looking for behavioral modification. That's, that's what I would, and so you go back and look at my high school Bibles. What's highlighted are passages about changing behavior. And because I think unintentionally that was the focus. Keep in mind, that's never going to be our focus. Once I understood the hermeneutic, a hermeneutic is the art and science of studying Scripture. Once I understood the hermeneutic of looking in Scripture for identity change, that began to change everything about the way I studied Scripture. And this is one of the most important identity change passages in any work of literature of any time, much less in Scripture, is this idea. No, no, you were nobody. You were nothing. Now you are God's people. Now you are His temple. Now you are His priests. Now you offer His sacrifices. You even get to, catch this, you have the, you have the opportunity and obligation to, quote, declare the excellencies of God. Well, now you're His town criers. Now we are his marketing agents. We are the ones who shout out all the great things about him. The wonderful, to the, the Greek here, the wonderful, powerful, virtuous aspects of who God is. We get to declare those excellencies. Because he called us from darkness and into marvelous, not just darkness to light, marvelous light, wonderful, remarkable, life-changing light. So again, that's something that is a behavioral change that comes from the identity change. And I've used that line before about saying we don't, we don't teach our middle school boys to treat the middle school girls as though they're married to them. Why not? Because they aren't. Yeah, that's, it's not, see, it's not that hard. It's really not. They're not. The identity change hasn't happened. If one of them down the road, somewhere down the road, marries one of those girls, then they should treat them as though they're married to them. Why? Because they are. See, it's, I don't know why this is hard for us. It's not that tough this is a change. You are, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are his temple. Do you shine out? You're like a city on a hill. Is that how you live? Does it look that way? You're salt, you're light. Is it savory to be to have you in the life? Are you crying out his excellencies? This is one of those moments when I wish I could say, I told the first service, I wish I could tell you all, no one move, stay through the song section of the next service. So that you can see how intentionally John and Colson integrated these ideas into what we just sang. Now, the truth is they do it every single week. 
If you pay attention, you'll catch it. That's why you don't want to be late and miss that. This, we have been spending all morning declaring the excellencies of him who called us from darkness into his marvelous light. Do we do this with our entire lives? Do our spouses experience his excellencies through us? Do our friends? Do our children? We're capable of getting to do this together. That's why we meet together. One of the reasons we meet is so that we get to declare his excellencies together. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see the application starting to happen? Do you see that in Peter's writings? He spent the first chapter and a half telling you, look at this amazing thing God has done. Look at this amazing change that has happened in your identity if you followed him. Look at all this. Now, certain things should come from that. Certain truth. Now is when the behavior, so the behavior should change because the identity has changed. Now, that's going to be most of the rest of the book is going to be different aspects of this. Not that it's just one or the other, but that's the idea. This has changed. But again, Peter's going to start with an identity. Put the verse uh, back up, if you will, verse 11. So, I urge you as sojourners. So, no, so once again, though, he's still going to put in a couple more identity statements here, sojourners and exiles. And I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of end today somewhere in here, closing up, and we'll pick up there next time. But in, in Genesis 23.3, so as a good Jewish audience, you might go, wait a minute. He just said we're a chosen people, a priesthood. A, we're sojourners and exiles, though? That doesn't, that doesn't seem to work. I thought we were like royal priests, and now we're exiles? How is that, how is that true? Well, as a good Jewish audience, and I know you are, the minute you heard those two words, you immediately jumped to right Genesis. Genesis chapter 23. In Genesis 23, you jump to Abraham because Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. So once again, what you have is Peter connecting us to Abraham and to Abraham's covenant. Now, I'm not one of those who believes we have somehow totally replaced Israel in that. I don't, I don't buy that. Um, there's extreme arguments on both sides of all of this. You guys remember singing that when we were kids, Father Abraham? Any of you grew up in the, you remember that in children's church? Yeah, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. Okay, so sorry. That was the, um, the hokey pokey for Christians, right? Um, it was, and Ginger grew up somewhere, I was thinking it was seven sons, right? Isn't that the version you, which I'm like, I mean, there were seven, but I mean, there's, there's 12. So it's a, that, that includes seven, but not, this is, this, it's interesting. You didn't know that was a theologically, uh, a song wrapped up in theological conflict, did you? Um, as to what degree, what does it mean that we are Abraham's children now? We aren't, do we fully replace the Jewish nation or do, are they still have a special role? What is that special role? And it's a debate that still goes on. And so I'm going to end with, uh, with a, a, an analogy that I think works really well. Um, I told the first service that I made up this analogy, but no one believed me, so I won't even bother to try. And this one, so it's like a, because I didn't, uh, they were right, I was lying. The, um, it's like having a, an olive tree in your olive garden, and not the restaurant, an, an actual, a, a 
Yeah, sorry, a, a place where olive trees grow, and, and you have a, a good tree, and, and it's very healthy, and it's what it needs to be, but it has aspects that need to be changed or whatever, and you also want to graft in these wild olives that have grown around as well. So what you do is you, is you clip off some of the branches, and you graft on wild olive branches, and then they begin to grow connected to that tree, and in one sense, they have replaced aspects of that tree, but in another sense, they're totally dependent on that tree. And both of those are true simultaneously, and I think that's probably why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 taught this through analogy, is because the minute we try to make it fit one of our categories, it's not going to fully work, and we don't want to do that. That's a beautiful picture. Does this, reveal, does this leave a mystery? Yes, it does. Does it reveal how God's nature creates a parable of His work? It does that too, and it's beautiful. Does it reveal the fact that even though we aren't Jews, we've been made part of His tree? It does. That each of us have this opportunity, like wild olives, we have now been welcomed into the garden. Like orphaned children, we have been welcomed into the home. Like dead people in graves, we've been called out of the graves to live abundant lives. That's the gospel. Let's not miss that. Peter is going to call on us. You need to declare those excellencies. He's going to continue to do this throughout the rest. This needs to now show up. It needs to show up in everything else that we do. Who we are needs to be visible. Our spouses should see it. Our friends should see it. Our family should see it. Our children should see it. Our neighbors should see it. Someone who we just rub shoulders with in a grocery store should see it. That this is who we are. That there's been a radical change and needs to show. So that's going to be our prayer for us. And we're going to look at ideas for how we can maybe do a better job of that even as a church. So stand with me, if you will, and let's pray together. <coughs> Father, we are so grateful. We don't even have the words that you have chosen us. You have declared our identity changed. You were this, now you're this. You had this name, now you have my name. You had no inheritance, now you have my inheritance. God, I, I pray that we would learn to live as people who are so overwhelmed and gracious, grateful for this amazing good gift that you've given us, that you have adopted us as your children. You have purchased us for your own possession. You have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And Lord, I pray we would jo join our voices with you to call people out of the darkness into your marvelous light that we would declare your excellencies with our very breath, that everything we do or say would be done in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray these things, giving thanks to you through him. Amen. So I hope that you're ready to spend a few minutes here listening to what the Spirit has for you. You may need to come and pray. You may need to pray where you are. Maybe, maybe you need to sing and sing out what we've actually been teaching about and talking about. Uh, my prayer is that you'll be listening to what the Spirit has for you and just stilly, in a way of, of, of silence and stillness or singing to be hearing what He has uh, for you today from this message. So, John. Father, we love you. We worship and adore you. Glorify thy name in all the earth.
thy name. Glorify thy name. Glorify thy name in all the earth. Jesus, we love you. We worship and adore you. Glorify thy name in all the earth. Glorify thy name. Glorify thy name. Glorify thy name in all the earth. Spirit, we love you. We worship and adore you. Glorify thy name in all the earth. Glorify thy name, glorify thy name, glorify thy name in all the earth. All right, have a seat real quick. Need to introduce... A um, couple of people. So one, Camden, come on up. Would you bring your dad? Uh, Camden is ready to be baptized, and he wants us to know that, and so we're going to be baptizing him soon. So I'm sure you're going to be the one doing it, Kevin. All right, excellent. And so Kevin's going to be baptizing Camden soon, and we just want to celebrate that with him, that he's ready for that step. Very cool. Great testimony. Some of, some of you need to be listening and listening to us just already. And the Stroops, come on up. Um, we, we love to do this whatever we can do it. I mean, we, we grieve doing it, but uh, some of you know the Stroops, and, uh, and, and they have been, they're involved with their own operate, I guess, uh, APEC, and, and, uh, and some of you know that Bobby has developed over the years a special relationship with a guy you may have heard of named Patrick Mahones, and so, um, and he's one of his main trainers, and so uh, they are moving to Kansas City and uh, to go be up there and to continue to train them. Lord willing, when all that's over with, they're going to move back here. But I didn't tell them that. That's just, a, that's just a prayer. And so we want to send them out intentionally that as they go and continue to minister, as they have here, to continue to minister there and with the impact and influence that God is giving them um, with their whole family. And so I want to pray for both these guys, and then uh, Paul will come up and, and close out our time. Um, Father, we're so grateful for the work that you're doing. You are always uh, working in our lives. God, we are being sanctified by your word and by your spirit. Um, God, none of us have figured it out. None of us are perfect. Um, in fact, we're pretty awful at a lot of these different things you've called us to. Um, but you still allow us to be there and allow us to try to love each other and to love you, um, Lord. And you, you don't wait until we're perfect to change us. Um, you declare a change in our identity and then you let us learn and grow. Lord, I pray for the Stroops that you would help them to be a light um, in a dark place, that you would help them to be a city on a hill, that their family, their marriage um, would be an example to others of what it means to follow you, and that people will want to know about your son, Jesus Christ, because of them. 
Lord, I thank you for Camden's uh, testimony this morning as he has followed you as his Lord and Savior and is uh, ready to, to give that example and that testimony through baptism. And uh, Lord, we're so grateful for him in that and for uh, the Heron family as they continue to, uh, to lead their family well. Thank you, God, for these. Bless them and keep them as you send them out. We thank you in your son's name. Amen. Paul? And with that notion of being sent out, so now, as you have been fed, go and feed the hungry. As you have been set free, go and liberate the, liberate the oppressed. And as you have been received, go and welcome in the stranger. And so, as you have heard, go proclaiming the good news. And so, may the blessing which you have received from the Father God, the Son of Christ, and the ever-Holy Spirit, may that message be with you always. So go now in peace to love and to serve the Lord now and forever. Amen. Y'all come by and say goodbye to the troops.